Hello there. I'm Aaron Martell. I'm Ray Zimmer. I'm Rigor Cordis. And I'm Luke Figaro. And welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where we talk about and review a rock album of our choice. This episode, we're going to review Anthrax's 1985 album, Spreading the Disease. Rigor, this is your pick. So give us your Anthrax history and where you come in with this particular album. Uh, so it was during the Among the Living cycle, but I actually come in with this album. So I wasn't really that familiar uh, with Anthrax at all. And I came in on this, which I'll delve into the story a little bit more when we hit the first track. Um, and I've been on the Anthrax train ever since. I, I love these guys to death. Excellent. Ray Z. I remember getting into Anthrax, and I can tell you, it was the summer of 1989. Um, once again, me and my metal guru, Matt Deal, uh, he introduced me to Among the Living, and I was just kind of starting to get into speed metal. They were like the third of the big four that really grabbed me. Uh, that same summer, Matt and I got jobs pruning apple trees. I think I've even talked about this in another podcast, too. But uh, one weekend, decided we are going to take all of our earnings and head down to Main Street Records, which is a fantastic record store in Northampton. And I think it's a bloody shame they don't still have it around. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I mentioned this in the past, but I bought Randy Rhodes' tribute album and Joe Satriani's Not of This Earth. Matt bought M.O.D.'s Gross Misconduct, which is an awesome <laughs> album, <laughs> and this album. Uh, before he moved to Indiana to, uh, to live with his mom, though, he made me like a mixtape, and he put AIR on there. And that was like the first song on, on the mixtape. And uh, that was like the only song I really knew on that album. Then later on, somebody let me borrow nice fucking video. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce it backwards. And Mike, was that you or Willie Miller? I feel like either one of you two had it. It must have been Willie. I never owned that one. Okay, so it was Willie. Uh, and that video made me really get into them and uh, kind of introduced me to Armed Dangerous, Medusa, and Gung Ho. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to really fight the urge not to do that, a la Bullet Boys. But... Uh, I know that I listened to that album after that, but I'm not, I'm pretty sure that I borrowed it from somebody else. I never actually owned a copy of it myself. Uh, but yeah, no, that's my experience with Anthrax and this album in particular. All right. Lou, this is our second go around with Anthrax. So you, you don't know the drill, let the people know about it in this record. Yeah. The first time I heard about Anthrax, the band was sometime in 1983 when I went to a store called Rock and Roll Heaven in Clark, New Jersey and bought the 45 of uh, Soldiers of Metal back with Howling Furies and uh, I liked it and when Fistful of Metal came out I was however many months later I got it no question is asked and it didn't disappoint and so a while later they released Armed and Dangerous that EP and they shed their weakest link, their singer, and replaced him with uh, Joey Belladonna, who had more appeal and, in my opinion, was a better singer. Uh, before they fired Neil, Tur Neil Turbin, he had convinced the band to fire founding member Dan Lilker, and they replaced him with Charlie's nephew, Frank Bello. Got all that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on to the next record. So this is Joey Belladonna and Frank Bello's first proper album with the band, and I bought it sight unseen on CD when it came out. Nice. This is our third Anthrax episode on the podcast. We've done Among the Living and Sound of White Noise, and like I said then, I came aboard the Anthrax train with State of Euphoria on cassette after Metallica opened me up to the joys of thrash metal. So Anthrax was the second thrash band I got into, and I just went back and got the back catalog on CD because by then I had switched to CDs. So I first got Among the Living, and then shortly after I got Spreading the Disease, and Mike, this had to be about 1989 or maybe even early 1990, but it was before Persistence of Time came out. So I just became a big Anthrax fan. Now I'll give you some basic facts about this record coming to you from Wikipedia. Spreading the Disease is the second studio album by American heavy metal band Anthrax. Released on October 30th, 1985 on Megaforce slash Island Records. It was produced by Carl Kennedy, Anthrax, and John Zazula. And was recorded in 1985 at Pyramid Sound Studios, Ithaca, New York. It reached number 113 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and has no certifications for albums sold. You can't account for taste. And here's the band's lineup card. We have... Joey Belladonna on lead vocals. Dan Spitz on lead and rhythm guitar and backing vocals. Scott Ian on rhythm and lead guitar and backing vocals. Frank Bello on bass and backing vocals. And Charlie Benanti on drums. 
Okay, let's get into a track-by-track analysis of this album. We launched the record with AIR, written by Anthrax. and Mike, what do you say? All right. So this is the song that got me into Anthrax. Lying in bed on a Sunday night listening to Metal Shop, the only show with teeth featuring Charlie the Butcher Kendall. Fuck um, yeah, dude. That's this is how I listen to that show fucking religiously. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> my God. So I uh, Sunday nights, I would fall asleep with the Metal Shop on. My mom would come in and shut my stereo off because <laughs> I'd be <laughs> sitting there listening to blasting metal through the house and fall asleep to it. And I remember him introducing Anthrax. And, of course, it's a name you heard. You know, at the time, I was already into, you know, Motley and Van Halen and all the, all those guys. And even Metallica at the time. And so, like I said, Among the Living was out, but they played this song. And he said AIR, and it stands for Adolescence in Red. I said, wow, that's a cool name. And um, it kind of it started from there. And, by the way, uh, there's uh, Metal Shop Archives on YouTube for those of you who want to go in the Wayback Machine. Um, Ooh, yeah. Sure. I love the punctuated start to this, uh, followed by Charlie's drum roll, and then that lead that builds up to Joey coming in. It's a great way to introduce Joey, especially compared with Neil Turbin. Lou, like you said, Fistful of Metal was awesome, but then when you hear Joey sing, you're just like, wow, okay. And then the mighty Frank Bellow, they hand it over to him. To me, Frank is the most underrated bass player in the Big Four. Mm. He flies underneath this entire thing and like cliff he plays with his fingers no pick and the energy to this day i just saw him last summer the energy that that guy still has is insane i love i love frank bellow he is fun to watch live he he is yeah he, he brings the show um and then we have that anthrax patented mosh section that they throw into every song the solo's okay it serves the song well but to me where we hear how Anthrax separates themselves from the pack with the rest of the big four, Joey's vocals, because they are so proficient, followed with those almost hardcore backing screams and shouts that make it anthemic, that's the Anthrax sound. And you get it right out of the gate with this song. So I, I think it's a great start, and I love this song. Ray Z. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't have <clears throat> a whole lot different than uh, Mike mentioned that being um, adolescence in red. I read somewhere Charlie Benante claims that it was a parody of uh, the Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Who knows? That's my Cliff Clavin fact for the uh, for the day. But uh, yeah, I'll just throw that in there. Um, you got a really powerful intro and a cool riff. I like how they have two different guitar riffs going. It's kind of got like a thrash version of that kind of Stones Aerosmith, you know, kind of guitar interplay going on. Uh, the verse riff is solid. The note choice could be viewed as kind of pedestrian. But the overall riff is solid. Sometimes bands can start using riffs that sound recycled, but this sounds fairly original. Well, Joey Belladonna's vocals are fucking aces. And it's weird. Of the big four bands, I feel like he's the most technically proficient, and yet nobody ever really talks about it. Um, he belted out there like the illegitimate son of Lou Graham and Susie Sue. Hmm. I was pretty skeptical when it was announced that he had left. John Bush was really good, um, but at the time, I kind of wrote him off as another baritone crooner in the style of Eddie Vedder. I felt like Anthrax choosing him was kind of an attempt to win over the mall grunge kids and the Wallapa losers. Uh, I dig him now, but, but Joey was and will always be my favorite vocalist in Anthrax. Uh, Benante is a fucking awesome drummer. I love the rapid fire snare notes introducing the burst riff. The double bass work is actually pretty nasty too. I feel like he's on par with Dave Lombardo in those regards. I always forget how good Danny Smith actually kind of was. Uh, he's, he's got an even mix of legato and staccato lines and his solo seemed like the single line equivalent of Scott Ian's rhythm work. I think they actually both complement each other really well between Scott Ian's rhythm stuff and like his like staccato kind of like lead. And while we're on it, it also seems like Scott Ian is not held in the same regards as other guitarists in the big four. I, I think he deserves a seat at the table. His wrist was solid and he was an in, in-the-pocket in rhythm player. His guitar tone was a little similar to Hatfield's when he palm muted, but I think it had more of like a uh, Tipton Downing tonal quality, almost kind of like a, I mean, this is a distortion, it's kind of tinny, but I like that. 
And this song just fucks, man. Lou, I have to put myself back to the time when this came out. Recording engineers didn't know what the fuck to do with these guys or heavy metal in general. The heavier it got, the shittier it sounded. And in this case, this record sounds like buzz saws, two stroke motors and monkeys beating on five gallon buckets. <laughs> that said, this starts out like a radioactive monster rising from the shore only to start vaporizing skyscrapers and the populace with its atomic raid breath. The fucking attack of, of Charlie's bass drums is cartoonish. It's so fast. These guys are brutal. AIR, Adolescence in Rebellion. Don't let your parents, your school and the authorities mold you into the good little conformist that they want you to be. Live your life for yourself. This would be great at half speed. It, it only gets better once you speed it up. The middle part is where they slow it down and is the perfect time to switch directions in the pit. And by the time they speed it back up again, you've lost a few teeth and are bleeding from your lower lip. Fun, fun. <laughs> Keep on winning. It's a great opening. <laughs> Sorry, man. That was just awesome. The delivery was perfect. <laughs> All right. What the fuck do I add to this? This being an 80s thrash metal album, of course, the opening track has to have an intro section that's bombastic and whets the appetite, gets you ready. And then Charlie Benanti's drum rolls brings us to an all-out thrasher that pounds into your skull with the snare cracking on every beat and the riffs from Scott Ian and Dan Spitz coming fast and insistent, while Frank Bellow's bass rumbles underneath and apes the guitars. There are Spitz's lead runs that keep the energy high, and in the slowed down and chugging middle section, it sounds like a trade-off of solos between Ian and Spitz that are serviceable. I don't know if they actually were trading off. It just sounds like that to me. I dig the descending run and the pre-chorus and the changes in tempo and rhythm throughout the track. They kick ass, and they're also a hallmark of 80s thrash. Joey Belladonna's vocals are distinctive in that he has more of a classic singer's voice. He doesn't growl or shout out the vocals most of the time. His voice is high and clear, and somehow it works. It's a part of the classic anthrax sound. We've said this, but I guess it bears repeating. A-I-R, Adolescence in Red, a play on George Gershwin's jazz standard, Rhapsody in Blue. And the lyrics are about encouraging a young person on the verge of adulthood to break away from their parents' influence and go live your own life not conforming to what they want you to be, break away and do what you want to do. Typical teenage rebellion stuff. This is how you get it going. We're off to a strong start. The next track is Lone Justice, written by Anthrax. Ray Z, lead us off. Well, Frank Bellow comes in with a kind of a subterranean bass line. And it's cool. There's a cool reminder of that weird crossover thrash hardcore scene that existed back then. I feel like his bass playing on the song is pretty fucking cool. It's solid and in the pocket, but he comes with these cool little fills. And I think he plays some chords in the bass uh, on the chorus. Um, I personally think he's kind of the star pitcher of this song. From a personal standpoint hard rock and heavy metal cowboy songs are a guilty pleasure of mine so this mm -hmm. is definitely has to be the lead track of when ktel releases a compilation album that of that niche i think the ad sounds a little like ktel presents cow poker 12 tracks of bovine raping brutality featuring tesla anthrax bon jovi tesla Timothy, <laughs> and more i think i said tesla twice did you say bovine raping <laughs> i sure did <laughs> And Mike can Mike Mike uh, gets the inside joke about cowpoke. Uh, <laughs> um, Again, another stellar riff by Ian and Spitz. Um, Spitz comes up with this weird kind of chromatic pattern that fits over the riff leading into the verse section. Belladonna really belts out the vocal, and he it just which just whips the horse's ass. Uh, the gang vocals they had were always cool because they never sounded like they were trying to mutt-lang it. Uh, it was just the sound of five knuckle-dragging yabos who really love metal, and I think that's fucking cool, and it's honest. 
the chorus is pretty power metal. Uh, uh, it's a little bit of a deviation, from, like the straight like thrash stuff, and I like that. That you can tell that like that was like a lot of their roots. Dan Spitz's guitar solo starts with some cool guitar harmonics. For me, it's kind of hard to hear harmonics on the guitar without mentally going to Roundabout or Red Barchetta, but he kind of makes it to his own. So this is a fucking pretty rad track. Lou. Little Frankie Bello starts this one off. This sounds like Metal Thrashing Mad Part 2. Same kind of power metal scream fest. It'll take a while for the band to shake off that original flavor of Neil Turbin, but Joey does a great job of making you forget about the guy. It's got that angry call and response backups that you guys were talking about that they develop over the years. And the lyrics are out of a Stephen King novel. I think this is filler, but it's filler of the best kind. This is filler that fucks. Rigor Cordis. <laughs> so I love this track. I absolutely do. I wrote Frankie fucking Bellow. You know, he follows along with the lead at the beginning. And then the melody that he provides underneath the riff is insane. Um, we know we talk a lot about Cliff and rightfully so. I mean, Cliff is Cliff. But Cliff's, Cliff's runs are really thoughtful. And while Frankie's are thoughtful as well, they have an attack that Cliff don't have and it's freaking beautiful and i'm like i think i should be number one in the you know wet panty frankie bello fan club at this point because the, <laughs> like this whole album I was like this is the first time the guy does a full album and this is what he gives you it's it's fantastic the song is undoubtedly a thrash song but it's also a must sing along because you're singing with joey and those vocals he provides the only time you stop singing is to play air guitar well, yeah, guys, Frank Bello spooges all over this. He gets to start off with a bass intro while the guitars follow him through the descending intro phrase, and the bass presence is felt all over this fucker. Bello makes a lot of high note choices that stand out and grab your ear. The riffs are chunky until the chorus where they're drawn out and legato, and we get the customary tempo and rhythm shifts without going into a full-on thrash beat. This song is still heavy as a pregnant elephant. Yeehaw! What is it with metal bands and cowboys? Maybe it's the outlaw aspect of it because metal fans are outsiders, man. If they're not outright cow fuckers. <laughs> I read that the lyrics are actually inspired by the book The Gunslinger by Stephen King, which would make sense since this band would use Stephen King as a lyrical inspiration a few times. At any rate, the gunslinger comes to town and takes out three outlaws. He's judge, jury, and executioner with a squint-eyed grin and a stubbled chin. Belladonna hits some high fucking notes and we get the anthrax shouted backing vocals and burn them and wasted. And yeah, I dig it, man. Bring it. The following track is Madhouse, written by Anthrax. like this one <laughs> yeah, man crazy riff so fucking heavy high energy heavy this is caffeinated heavy here the buzzsaw works you could smell the burning electronics on this one it's so loud the pre-chorus gets more frantic building up to some tension and then releasing it in the verse the whole song sounds like a drag race through traffic lights down Grand Avenue. Spitz's solo fucks. And Charlie, Scott, and Frankie hold the whole thing together like they're driving a dragster. Top fuel fucking going on here. Rockin' Mike. All right, here we go. That riff. We got the riff and that whammy bar action that introduces the only single off the album. What's not to love about this song? Um just take any of my Frankie Bellow fawning from the first two songs, just insert it in this section. And now let's talk Charlie Benante. He always has tasty feel, fills while providing some great punctuations, like in the chorus. It's a madhouse. You could just you hear those drums that go along with that cadence. But it's not just a straight bash. He works his way around the kit when he does it. And going into the into the chorus, there's always two of the it's a madhouse refrain. He only punctuates the first one, yes. which I thought is a kind of a cool, a, a, a cool approach to the song. Yeah, because I'm sorry to interrupt you because it threw me 
sometimes I, when I first started listening to the song, I missed the second Madhouse because I, I was I was timing it with the beat and it doesn't come in on it. Yes. So yeah, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's it's offset. It's like it's it, it's a cool little trick. He like he punctuates the first one and he allows you to kind of look for it on the other one. And you're like, wait a minute, where the fuck? <laughs> and it it, it, it kind of it's a cool way to draw you into listening to the song. I always thought it was cool. Um, but that's a way Char. I think Charlie's underrated. But this is Danny's best solo on the record for me. Fast and tight riffs, and we're three songs in, and it's still a winner. Ray Z. I'm glad Lou mentioned the last part because um, I remember when Matt and I first got this fucking, or when Matt got this album, we sat down listening to it. And I got to admit, I kind of miss having like listening parties when like an album first comes out, you know, and you and your buddies just sit around and you're like kind of analyze it and like, oh, this sucks. This is pretty good. But Matt and I used to do that all the time. So as I was saying, when we first heard this song, for whatever reason, I don't know what, but we just found the fucking intro fucking hysterical. And when you're 15 years old, if something's funny the first time, it's usually funny six or seven times after. So you got these two like knuckleheads sitting in his room with a cassette tape and playing that intro over and over again. And then just checking out the rest of the, of the song. So I've got this is some sentimental uh, value of this song to me personally. Um, I think the intro riff is great. That's all the riffs in this are fucking great. These you guys seem to shit out some pretty good riffs. The verse section is more kind of like a traditional power metal kind of a thing, which I, which I love. So that's like, I like how they kind of like go back and forth with that. Uh, the trap in this nightmare part is pretty fucking heavy, and it's got some really cool trills in there too, kind of a la you know uh, raining blood. Although this album kind of predates that, as far as I can tell. Uh, the solo starts with some Angus Young style blues bend, and the rest of it's pretty solid. Smith does like a really masterful job of stating cool riffs and speedy licks. It's not just all buzzsaw thirty second notes. This song is, I think it's, I mean, a lot of their songs have just a generally good groove, but this song is overall has a really catchy groove to it, and that's like what I got on the Madhouse. It's time for your medication, Mr. Brown. This is a menacing chugger of a tune that has cool siren-like whammy bar guitars in the intro. And a pounding beat in the chorus that features the big gang vocals on It's a Madhouse. We also get one of the better constructed double track guitar solos on the record. I agree with you, Mike. The lyrics are about a nut job in a madhouse, and it's intimated that he might be criminally insane, but his whole world is white coats, confusion, noise, and bad dreams, while he's kept doped up to the gills. This is a bona fide Anthrax classic. It's still played live to this day, and it was the only single from the album that did not chart. <laughs> <laughs> you almost feel like the, the, the way they arranged it was intentional as far as like the verse section, because that's like the most, like I said, it's kind of power mode. It's like the most like auditorily accessible part, I think, if you're not used to thrash. And then when they get to the part where he's going nuts, that's when like all the trills come in and the riff, it just really gets heavier. The next track is SSC, Stand or Fall, written by Anthrax. Rigor Cordis, lead us off. All right. So album sequencing Mike is going to make a farewell appearance on this track. And I think we know why this is track four. It's a good song. It has all the trademarks of the first three, but somehow it just doesn't hit as hard for me. Um, so this is the first dud. And for me, it's the only dud. So this is Mike's unimpressed fluffy fuckery. <laughs> Ray Z. The intro of this song kind of reminds you what it would sound like if a thrash band tried to recreate Peter Gabriel's The Last Temptation of Christ soundtrack. <laughs> it's got like that weird like third world thing. Like you can see like a fucking monkey running down a fucking street fucking stealing something. And I don't know. They just reading too much. Into it. I just watch way too many fucking movies is what it is. Uh, Dan Spitz pops out of nowhere and melts your future grandchildren's face off in a six to minute run with a guitar neck. And then Spitz and Ian hit you a square in the face with a sick chugging riff. The track is one of those rare birds in the chorus section, kind of like The Prisoner by Iron Maiden or Escape by Metallica. It's like oddly positive and uplifting, for lack of better adjectives, uh, for a genre that can be pretty dour and serious, um, which is kind of, I guess, their vibe, I guess, as the kids would say these days. Um, it's got cool. There's a cool little offbeat section, which Joey sings about honor and loyalty. I like that part of the song. 
the end of this song really gives me an ACDC vibe. Like there's sometimes like little things of the, of ACDC pop up in this band, but it's like in weird mm-hmm. places and it's like never a direct ape. Lou. I forgot all about this one. Remember what I said about caffeinated? Holy shit. These guys made Metallica look sleepy. Lars would drop a kidney playing this. <laughs> I never understood why these guys weren't bigger. There wasn't any major addicts or nutcases in the band, no major egos, and everybody played fucking great. The songs were good. The only thing I could think of is that they went against the grain of what was expected and what was popular, and they did what they wanted, and they wore what they wanted, and they sounded how they wanted. Maybe that pissed somebody off, because this fucking fucks. (laughs) Goddamn right it does. The SSC intro is this odd Eastern music thing. You were saying that, Ray, that becomes a guitar solo lead up. And I read that SSC stands for suck some cock, though I didn't get confirmation of that. But actually, that's what the Internet says. Then it goes into a fast, thrashy tune that races along with some nice double bass drumming from Benante. I dig the thumping standoff all chorus with the gang vocals again and Spitz's solo is primarily fast and ascending note flurries. The bridge has an up and down guitar line that's aped by the vocals and the lyrics to me are about self-empowerment, persevering through adversity, fighting the battles in life that come your way with everlasting willpower and never giving up even when you're all alone and honor and loyalty is hard to find. It's your choice. Stand with the strongest or fall with the weak, motherfucker. The following track is The Enemy, written by Anthrax. Ray Z, what do you say? I don't know what it is. I get like a weird drum machine vibe off the intro. Like, I don't know if they're like, I don't know what it is. And maybe it's just the way they, anybody who's like knows more about studio stuff or production could probably explain it to me. But that's what I think of when I hear this. There are some cool understated guitar figures going on underneath the chugging guitar riff in the intro. It's not like a typical metal fare. It almost reminds me of the edge from U2. Like that weird little chord section underneath the, the riff in the background. Uh, they introduce you to the chorus that you're going to ha- get before you get to the verse section. And the verse kind of prowls around like Holy Diver with a thicker guitar sound. Uh, the chorus is a great gang vocal and that riff again. And at three minutes and 56 seconds, we get a new section, which the song's tempo gets faster and the overall background music gets busier. I like how they return to the chorus at a faster tempo. The subject matter is pretty super heavy and depressing and dark, but the rest of the song is aces in my book. And this is one of my favorites on this entire album. Lou. I'm hearing seeds of Indians in the intro of this. You bastard, you stole my line. (laughs) It's not going to be the first time that they'd rehash an idea for something better later. It's another deep cut. Very influenced by the power metal that was prevalent at the time. Actually reminds me of some of the stuff off their uh, For All Kings record that they'd release years later. This proves that they're a great power metal band and not just East Coast thrash. Joey even does his best Jeff Tate scream toward the end. (laughs) It's another one that fucks, man. (laughs) Bent over the rail. (laughs) (laughs) Mike. All right, so that was the first thing I had written, Luke. Anyone else hear Indians in the beginning of this? Um, That drum intro, it's a bit of an anomaly in 80s thrash. It's almost like they have an echo on it. That's the only thing I, I could think of. And I think it kind of hints at their divergence from thrash and some of the ex- experimentation they would do later on in their career. Um, it brings back a melodic verse with those hardcore shouts and that refrain screams in the night. I really imagine this is kind of like giving the crowd a break. You get all those smelly guys at Lamores and they're just getting a breather during this song, but you're loving every minute of it. This is how you do an album track is this song right here. And I would just kind of side note, wondering if they double track the solo because it sounds kind of guitar like 
Now, to me, the intro reminds me of Hell Awaits by Slayer once the guitars kick in, with Benanti playing that tribal-esque drum intro that sounds fucked up because the snare is gated so harshly that Phil Collins would piss his pants laughing at it. (laughs) The main riffs have a mid-tempo gallop that are pretty badass, and the tension buildup in the pre-chorus is released nicely with the screams and the night chorus. The backing vocals are dark and ominous. Belladonna holds a high note that takes us to the bridge where the tempo speeds up. And again, there's a tension buildup that gets let out in the guitar solo. It's double tracked. Definitely. It's at each channel. You can hear it, Mike, that mixes melodic and shredding elements. Now, see, this is where I disagree with you, Ray. I wish they brought the tempo back down for the last choruses, but they decide to maintain the faster tempo. To me, it just doesn't have the same impact that it does like when it's slowed down and like... The lyrics are about Hitler, the ultimate enemy, and the Holocaust. It doesn't go into detail about the atrocities like, say, Slayer did. This is more of a general view history lesson with the appropriate outrage. I love this, even though I do have a couple of issues with it. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on Aftershock, written by Anthrax. What do you say? Charlie starts this off and they go off all guns blazing. This band never lets up and it's all good. Another mosh fest. There's enough testosterone here to fuel its cement truck. <laughs> this is a musical equivalent of it. An X game dirt bike challenge. It's a hyper caffeinated thrill ride over bumps, bridges and berms. This fucks too. <laughs> I'm seeing a pattern here. <laughs> Mike. All right. Charlie brings inside too. I said the same thing. There's some great start and stops in the beginning of this. And start and stops really the wrong way. But anybody who listens to Allison Chains, Sean Kinney has this technique where when he plays, there's the slight, not a pause, but it's a slight hesitation. And he does it pretty consistently. That works out his style. And Charlie does that in this song. It's like a slight little hiccup almost. Um, But it works. It's so cool. I think we can say this is where the fawning section for Frank Bello comes back. To me, he's the big force geezer butler. Mm -hmm. Um, Just some of those lines. It really reminded me a lot of uh, Children of the Grave. Just the way geezer's underneath everything. And... um, Ray, to your point about ACDC, Scott Ian is thrash metal's Malcolm Young. I really think he just, the way he attacks those, the chugs and the rhythm that he has. And uh, I like the hay that you get in between. And again, the solo is not great. Dan Spitz is no John Denae, but he helped lay the groundwork for those thrashy solos that we love. Uh, This one's filled with dive bombs and whammy work. It's a great start to side two. And in celebration of their 40th anniversary, they put out a live, like a, an in-studio live album because it was during COVID and it's called uh, XL. It wasn't even on a label. They put it out themselves on that album. They did five songs off this record on the live album and they actually did this. So it's, uh, it's, it's worth a listen. If you get check out Anthrax XL, you hear some cool uh, old album tracks. I actually watched that prepping for this and it's on YouTube. It's friggin' great. Yes, I did too. Yes. Geezer Bellow. Yep, Frankie Butler. Ray Z. Yeah, I, Mike, man, dude, fucking thanks for actually putting that. He is the fucking Malcolm Young uh, of Anthrax. I can see he's just steady. He's super steady. Um, so, yeah, thanks for that. Um, this track is actually almost like a good palate cleanser after the heaviness subject matter of the enemy. Yeah. Um, all the parts of this song are really great, but I feel like this song is Charlie's. The intro sounds like Charlie if he was goofing on motor breath after five cups of coffee and a few shots of Sudafed. <laughs> um, <laughs> you got another catchy riff by Ian and Spitz right after that. The militaristic riff underneath the vocals in the verse section is pretty gnarly as well. It's a weird combination of groove and squareness. 
it's not like nerdy squareness, but it's like kind of hopped up goofiness. It gets your head bopping around like the church lady after she tells her musical director, hit it, Pearl. <laughs> um, it may, it kind of maintains the same vibe in the pre-chorus. The music in the chorus uh, loosens up and almost lets you breathe. Dan Spitz's solo with the repeated verse is pretty decent. Um, and then, then there's like some noisemaker stuff. I don't know if that's him or if that's Scott Ian. Um, but it's like noisemaker stuff, like, almost like King and Hanneman. And I think, you know, if there's a time and a place for those, those kind of solos. And this time and place warrants it at the end of the song. I love this track. But since I need to have one more for one last time, I'm going to make this by Ray's Unimpressed Musical Pick. I actually dig this song a lot. But <laughs> I love the other tracks uh, on this album. Just a scorch more. So, yeah. Benante opens this with a fast-as-fuck drum fill, and then a pick slide takes us to a tune with ripping razor-sharp riffs, fast double bass thrash beats, and shouted, SHOCK! vocals. This thing is a blast of aggression. It slows down slightly for the breakdown and solo section without losing the intensity. Hey! Belladonna sings with urgency, and lyrically, we up the ante, even from the last track. You thought the last track was bad? This one's about nuclear war and the destruction of humanity. So don't trust your leaders. It's a favorite subject of 80s metal bands. It's a great kick in the face to start the second side. The next track is Armed and Dangerous, written by Neil Turbin, Scott Ian, and Danny Lilker. Rockin' Mike, what do you say? So this is the song that introduced Frankie and Joey to the world when it was released on that Armed and Dangerous EP in uh, February of 85 with a slightly different mix. But this song is all about Charlie. He's got some cool fills, and he really drives this one. It's, again, great sing-along chorus. Without the hardcore background shout, the solo is eh, okay, but I'm always singing along with Joe, and I like this one too. Razy? This track fucks like a nymphomaniac on death row. <laughs> the clean shell guitar part is fucking cool. You know, it's parts like this one that got me into metal just as much as bludgeoning riffs or like great guitar solos. Even like the little keyboard part in the background kind of works. And then you got like this monolithic, powerful, distorted section. It's a power metal bukkake fest and it's epic. Dance Bits brings another cool solo. For me, it has kind of like a Zach Wilde vibe before Zach Wilde was like even a fucking thing. Um, then they hit you with a guitar, guitar riff that swings as hard as a motherfucker. The whole band really locks in on this part. And I feel like Charlie's the guy at the wheel throughout it. Uh, the first section is the kind of hangs on the five chord, which is a great tool for building tension. And my Western influence ear loves it, but because it, it, it needs some release, it kind of sits there on the five and you're kind of like, when is it going to go to the main part? When is it going to go to the tonic? When are you going to get some resolution? And then when they go to the chorus, it resolves going back to the tonic key. And there's a sense, like you finally get to scratch that itch. The chorus is pretty great as well. The rhythm guitar is chugging after uh, Joey Belladon sings Armed and Dangerous is pretty fucking cool. And then you got this kind of cool color response between the the bullfighting guitar riff, which is echoed by the drum. That That's fucking rad. And Mr. Spitz takes us on another walk through Diminished Scaleville. Um, it's a great solo. It kind of reminds me of Randy Rhodes' solo, Steal Away the Night Solo, which is also based on uh, Diminished Scale runs. So, yeah, no, this is a pretty rad fucking song. Lou. Armed and dangerous. Wow! Armed and dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. That was good. Man, you got some pipes. This was cool at the time, but hasn't aged well. The multi-track classical pick uh, acoustic intro sounds dated and badly recorded. They were reaching for that Queensryche sound, but it didn't fit them well. It, this is the peak of what they were reaching for with fit, Fistful of Metal, and I'm glad they outgrew it. it. It's got key anthrax elements, but the vocals are out of place. And 
Joey would find his voice on later albums that that didn't come across as like so contrived. Classic Anthrax, nonetheless. I was excited when this came out, uh, when the EP came out with with him on it, and, and I liked this song at the time. But listening to it now, it's the time has has not treated it well. But uh, this one would be lose obligatory skipper on every record. But it still fucks. So this is an older track written by the three high school classmates and original Anthrax members, Scott Ian, original vocalist Neil Turbin, and original bassist Danny Lilker, all of whom played on the first album, Fistful of Metal, before Lilker got let go and formed Nuclear Assault. And Turbin got fired for personality conflicts with the other band members. It was a messy situation, but when they got replaced by Bellow and Belladonna, they recorded a five-song EP we've referenced called Armed and Dangerous, with four out of the five songs written with Turbin and Lilker. This track was remixed and put on Spreading the Disease. It starts with an acoustic guitar intro with an uncredited background synth line. At least that's what it sounds like to me. And then it begins with a slow tempo as a kind of sort of ballad. I sense a little bit of influence from Metallica's Fade to Black, which made it safe for metal bands to slow things down. And like Fade to Black, it develops into a heavy thrash song that has the speed and chug with some nice melodic leads and Belladonna yelping away, hitting some fucking high notes. Right, Lou? I read that the lyrics are about a wrongfully imprisoned convict who escapes and is ready to take his revenge on his captors and society at large, armed to the teeth with a gun and a knife, fearless and filled with rage and hatred. I like this song fine. I had to pick something off of this, so this is how I'm going to do it. I'm just going to take this song on the Armed and Dangerous EP. So for here, I'm going to call it Aaron's Stinky Stinker. It was a better version on the EP anyway. The penultimate track is Medusa, written by Anthrax and John Zazula. How about this one, Ray? This is actually one of my favorite Anthrax songs, and actually one of my favorite Anthrax guitarists all the time. Um, when Metallica put the Black album out, I read this interview with Lars Ulrich, and in the interview, he uh, supposedly he and James Hetfield were sitting at a table, and he was, he said to Hetfield, "Like, do you want to just write simpler songs?" I kind of feel like this is the direction they should have gone in if they're going to write a simple song. Yeah, it's not a super, you know, it's not a super complex song, but that riff gets me every time I hear it. Uh, it brings you back in memories of the Ray Harryhausen Medusa from the Clash of the Titans movie, which is kind of near and dear to my heart as well. The song has a great showcase of Belladonna's vocals, especially the, in the intro, that long O kind of thing going. It's kind of like his, like his version of "Hallowed Be Thy Name" with like the Bruce Dickinson O. Uh, the pre-chorus or whatever the fuck it is, I don't know, it has some cheesy electronic effects, uh, but the gang vocals make up for it. And the, the chorus riff is just a really cool, slow gallop. So yeah, no, I, I, for me personally, I think this is, uh, the last three tracks on this album are, are like the goods for me. So there you have it. Lou. Now we're talking groovy, melodic, heavy, great mid-tempo stomper. Makes your head bang and shout along. Medusa! It it gets gradually faster as it goes along. Spitz's angular, disjointed solos never failed to disappoint. Another great tune live. These guys really put on a show. Great show. It's a full contact gig. And by the end, everybody's tired and sweaty. Audience included. Fuck me. Rockin' Mike. I mean, the song's great. We've all been mixing it. Um, one of the things that I like, uh, Frankie mimics it at the beginning, and he seems to be off like a half step, which really kind of makes me like the song a little bit more. Of course, you got the high pitch. Uh, I can't do it as well as Lou, but the Medusa in the chorus. 
with some cool backing vocals really makes it more interesting than it probably should be. But I, I, I love the hell out of the song. I always have. I've seen them twice in the past four years. And I, I love it when they break this song out. It's awesome. Um, the solo does sound like it was added post-production, though, which is kind of, it's got a different kind of tone to it. But I love the hell out of this song. This here is a top five favorite Anthrax cover. Probably even top three, even though it doesn't thrash at all. It's a traditional metal track with a cool-ass main riff and a groove that makes me throw the fucking horns up. You said that, Lou. I fucking love the backing vocals on this. Demon! Gorgon! Medusa! <laughs> and I also love how the music pauses to let the palm-muted guitars take over in the chorus. It's so fucking cool. And then we get some fucking kick-ass guitar mini in the solo section. Belladonna sings as menacingly as he possibly can, and the lyrics were written by Johnny Z, John Zazula, rest in peace, founder of Megaforce Records and a key figure in the 80s East Coast metal scene, instrumental in breaking anthrax and a little California band named Metallica. The lyrics are literally about the Gorgon Medusa of Greek mythology who is so hideous that one look at her would turn you into stone. The song is a warning. Do not look at this bitch. Her eyes or her snaky hair. Got it? You're well informed. And that brings us to the final track, Gung Ho, written by Neil Turbin, Scott Ian, and Dan Lilker. this last one holy shit save the fastest for last this is fucking crazy peter going road runner fast and poor frankie's fucking fingers are falling off scott's chugging like quagmire discovering the internet Giggity. Giggity, giggity, giggity. Giggity. And the whole thing just sounds like it's going to fucking fly off the rails. This is cocaine-fueled hamsters stuffed in a clothes dryer full of wasps <laughs> set on high. <laughs> fuck me, this fucking fox. <laughs> like a heavy metal Bill Burr. <laughs> Rigor Cornus. A holdover from the previous lineup, but holy Jesus, does this song cook? This is East Coast thrash. This is a little bit different than what you got on the West Coast. This is anthrax. This is overkill. Um, you know, Scott Ian, as you said it, Lou, his right hand is about to fall off. Uh, we do get some squeals done the right way. Are you paying attention there, Mr. Zach Wild? <laughs> and we get an anthemic chorus. We got a very strange ending that kind of introduces their humor at the end, but I'll take it. I think this might be one of the greatest final tracks in Thrash. What a way to end an album. Ray Z. My introduction to the song actually came from watching him do it live on a nice fucking videotape, and I was an instant fan of it. The song's a great barn burner to end the album with. I think everybody's pretty much on the same page with that. You could tell these guys had logged a lot of time on and off the stage together. The double bass and the rhythm guitar are just like an absolute fucking lockstep, and it just fucking just pounds you over the head. Once again, Dan Spitz gives a decent shreddy solo. I know that's a reoccurring thing for me with this review, but I have to say it's kind of weird how Anthrax is... I feel like they're kind of left out of the conversation. Um, I think Spitz is a solid, dependable lead player. Maybe... They just didn't mix the solos right away. I mean, yeah, he's definitely not, you know, you know, Alex Skolnick or Dave Mustaine or even, but you know, he, he, he does bring something to the table. That's like dependable. I feel I kind of do like it when they break into the symphony, de fanfares at section at the three minute and 26 second mark, because my mom, my mom and pop are like big fans of masterpiece theater when I was a kid. And they're always <laughs> watching like every Sunday night when I was, a, I was like a wee tyke and I can always hear the theme song. And that is what they're playing. You always hear like that piece right before this like old British geezer named Alistair Cook would come on screen 
sitting in his chair wearing a smoking jacket, and he would say shit like, Hello, I'm Alistair Cook, and welcome to Masterpiece Theatre. Tonight we will finish the harrowing Elizabethan drama, Daphne Got Her Bumhole Fingered by the Vicar. <laughs> in a weird way, I kind of feel like they were taking a poke at like the neoclassical shredder scene at the time, too, especially like after they play that, that motif, that little melody. And they had it with like shaving a haircut two bits. I think that's just kind of like, yeah, fuck you with your fucking neoclassical shit. And you get that kind of like late, that long, big, drawn out, bombastic ending with like, you know, they're listening, you, know, you can hear them talking in the background, stuff like that. And you get the, you hear them chanting not, which becomes like, you know, part of, kind of their shtick along the way. So yeah, no, this is a pretty nifty fucking way to end the album. Fight, 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 fight. Now the track by track is over, we'll give our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, rating is a zero to five system, with five being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a zero, which looked at Medusa after I told you not to. Rock and Mike, what are your final thoughts on spreading the disease? Well, I picked this album because I absolutely love it. I, I love this record. Um, like I said, I heard AIR first, uh, even though Among the Living was already out. This is one of the first cassettes I ever got through Columbia Record and Tape Club. If anybody's got a version on vinyl that they will uh, let me have, I would greatly appreciate it because it's one of the few I don't own by them on vinyl. But this this record is a classic. It's all the way, like I said, on their 40th anniversary, they did five tracks off this, and Gung Ho wasn't one of them. So that, I mean, that tells you the holding power this record has, not only in their life, but over their fans' kind of interest in the band. It's a great introduction to 80s thrash and into the band anthrax as well um i give it a 4.25 and i will just note that in terms of the importance of this record to me i only have two tattoos that are band related i have eddie and i have the not man and it's because of records like this i absolutely love this record ray z um it's kind of funny I did really initially dig Anthrax. I love the fact that they wrote great riffs. They had a sense of humor to take themselves too seriously. And they're big fans of metal. Like, they were fans just as much as guys putting it out there. And they loved comic books and horror movies, which was pretty much my bag at the time, too. They seemed like the kind of dudes that you would strike up a conversation with during detention when the teacher was out of the room. I kind of stepped away from them after Attack of the Killer Bees. It kind of seemed to me like they were becoming kind of gimmicky. Like, I never really got the whole Public Enemy collaboration. It seemed like they were trying too hard to fit into the 90s alt-rock scene. It didn't help that Scott Ian was everywhere on television for a few years, like a bald, goateed Charles Nelson Riley. Same thing with Dave Navarro, for that matter. I guess who probably would have been Paul Lind. I mean, if they ever re- reboot Match Game or Hollywood Square, somebody's got to call these two guys up. <laughs> but, you know, I'm a, in some instances, I can be a dickhead, and I think that was kind of like my dickheadish view of things at the time. But, you know, until we reviewed this album, I forgot how solid they were and the reasons why I liked them most. The music was awesome. Joey's a fucking killer vocalist. Spitz and Ian were a great guitar duo. And Frank and Charlie made a formidable rhythm section to work with as well. The album's really fucking good, and I'm glad that I had this chance to revisit it again. I'm going to give it a four. It's a great sonic signpost sending you in the direction of Among the Living, which is my favorite Anthrax album of all time. Lou. From the first single, Howling Furies, to the Fight Em Till You Can't on the final track on their last record, For All Kings, these guys could do no wrong. No matter what they try to put their unique anthrax stamp on it, it it, it always works. You can't be in a mellow mood when you put these guys on. Ain't nobody here came to be mellow now, not even a little bit. These guys are full throttle from the minute you drop the needle or push play or start the engine. There's no warming up. They just turn the key and and it's pedal to the metal until the end. There's not a power ballad in sight. 
And I give spreading the disease a four, um, a hard fucking four, not because there's any bad songs on it, but because there's so much better to come from these guys. And I've set the bar a bit higher. In August 1984, after Anthrax finished their tour to support their debut album, Fistful of Metal, vocalist Neil Turbin was fired and replaced by Matt Fallon, but Fallon was let go during the recording sessions, and at the suggestion of producer Carl Kennedy, Joey Belladonna was hired, despite not having a metal background. The band played some shows with Belladonna and put out the Armed and Dangerous EP in February 1985, and then got down to work on their second full-length album. A handful of the songs had contributions from former Anthrax members, and Belladonna's vocals meshed surprisingly well with the heavier music than he was used to singing on. The album cover was an illustration by Peter Corriston and Dave Heffernan, based on a concept by Charlie Benante of a screaming guy laying on a table being tested for radiation levels by men in hazmat suits with a prominent mangina. And when Spreading the Disease was released... It received widespread acclaim from critics and was well-received by the metal community. For me, I liken this record to Fistful of Metal the way I see Ride the Lightning to Kill Em All by Metallica. It shows a giant leap in production and songwriting, and the addition of Belladonna gave Anthrax a sound that made them stand apart from their contemporaries in the thrash metal scene. The music still has the elements that make it Anthrax. It's got the East Coast hardcore punk influence and looser, less serious vibe than the Bay Area thrash bands but it will still kick your ass and get your head banging. I love this band, and this has always been my favorite Anthrax album. Even though it's their major label debut and has a bit more polish than their first record, it still captures Anthrax at their rawest and hungriest. And it's the first record of the classic era of the band. I give Spreading the Disease a four and a half. And yeah, they'd go on to make more popular albums and reach greater heights, leading to their standing as one of the big four of thrash. But for my money, Anthrax never did any better than what they served up right here. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms wherever you listen to them. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow the podcast and leave us a review. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com or also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Podcast, I'm Aaron. I'm Ray. I'm Mike. And I'm Lou. See ya. I'm old Greg. Fight, fight, fight. Bitches, ang- bitches anger and ridiculous and bolos never fail. <laughs> you guys are sexist. David, David. <laughs> you Chinese? So I you? You got charisma. For years, I just need to bring up. <laughs> so, let's talk about the album cover for a second, shall we? Um, can we talk about the mangina? <laughs> the dude has a bag. Look, at, he has a bag. He does. He wicked does. And, I, and I'm just kind of wondering, is, is this like a precursor to old Greg from the Mighty Boots? <laughs> <laughs> I've never noticed that before. 